Nearly 40% of Canada is covered by forests, so it's easy to think that those forests will do a lot of work in sucking up carbon from the atmosphere. But when they are mismanaged and the conditions for a fire are made more severe, those forests are at significant risk. And the effects of a forest fire can radiate beyond just the trees that are burnt. I'm Adam Toy. And I'm Dave McIver, and this is Why. Forest fire season is upon us, and forest fires have already hit Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and northwestern Ontario, including a voluntary evacuation near Kenora. While they're not uncommon, forest fires seem to be getting worse around the world. The California wildfires last year burned 4.4 million acres of land, and the Australian bushfires of 2019 to 2020 burned 10 times that land mass, earning it the nickname of the Black Summer. So are the large forest fires also making conditions worse with carbon from the fires being released into the atmosphere? Dr. Carly Phillips is a researcher in residence at the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions at the University of Victoria. She recently wrote a piece called How Forest Fires Affect Climate Change and Vice Versa and joins us now. Yeah, thanks for having me. Carly, let's start with the first part of that headline. Would it be correct to say that during forest fires, the burning of trees releases carbon into the air that then goes into affecting climate change? There's a lot more to it, but that is correct. So when materials burn in a forest fire, they're releasing a whole suite of greenhouse gases. Um, so CO2, methane, uh, there's black carbon, so aerosolized um, carbon that um, can also go up into the atmosphere. So those are directly contributing greenhouse gases to the atmosphere. But you're also correct that forests are an important carbon sink and that they're actively taking carbon out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis. Um, that carbon accumulation occurs over a long period of time when you're thinking about the forest stands um, that we're seeing here in Western Canada. So, but but there's a there's a relationship between climate change and wildfires, or is that maybe jumping to a conclusion? Not at all. While we can't attribute any specific wildfire to climate change, when we look at the trends of what's happening with our changing climate in terms of higher temperatures and longer droughts, those things are interacting with the way that humans have modified their environment to create the kind of wildfire situation that we're in right now. And I think that's what's really interesting to me about wildfires is they occupy this unique space in the conversation about climate change because they are both an impact of climate change as climate change worsens, we're seeing effects on wildfires themselves, but at the same time, they're also worsening and exacerbating climate change by releasing greenhouse gases that have typically been stored in the biosphere back into the atmosphere. In the last few years, we've had some pretty big forest fires. If it's 1718 in Alberta and BC or 1920 in Australia, they seem to be getting worse. Are we on a bit of a runaway train in terms of forest fires, more carbon in the air, worsening climate change, which makes forest fires worse, which makes climate change worse? It's kind of a vicious cycle. I think what you're describing is the feedback loop between the two. Um, I think calling it a runaway train, I have more hope than that, mm. I guess is what I'll say. I have more hope in um, the science that's currently being worked on to try to understand what we can do, how we can manipulate our forests um, to decrease the risk of these catastrophic wildfires that we're seeing. But I also have hope about our ability to intervene um, to slow down and mitigate 
climate um, and the, the climate warming that we're seeing. But I think the other piece of wildfires that's really interesting is that it's an important opportunity to not only mitigate climate change um, by changing the way that carbon fluxes are moving between um, our forested ecosystems in the atmosphere, but it's also an opportunity to adapt to climate change, um, which is an important part of the way that uh, countries are managing climate change. Mm -hmm. um, adapting to the the impacts that we know are happening right now. I'd I'd like to get uh, back to 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 why you're ha why you have hope as far as different mechanisms that we can use, but uh, and also the 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 ability to adapt to climate change. But something in this in this piece on the conversation.com that that really um, I found interesting was that f it seems like for the past century or so, or, or, there there's been a policy in place in Canada and the U.S. Uh, that has made uh, forest fires worse, probably unintentionally, maybe unintentionally, I'm not sure, uh, as far as uh, restricting, um, uh, uh, I guess, controlled burns or, or, or uh, yeah, controlled burns and, and, and fire suppression. I'm wondering if you can tell me more about that and how that has made the forest fire situation uh, worse in the last five or six years? The first thing I'll say is that the patterns that we're seeing with wildfires are highly place dependent. So they're really dependent on the type of forest that has been there, um, the types of disturbances that that forest has experienced, as well as the kind of climatic conditions under which that forest evolved. And so it, it's challenging to make um, specific predictions or observations that cover all of those forest types. So I'll start by saying that. But the policy of fire suppression that's been enacted in the United States and in Canada have completely changed the way our forests are structured. So mm. one of the scientists on the project that I work on, Paul Hesberg, has done some really interesting work about the landscape ecology of wildfire and how by suppressing fires, we've allowed fill-in and homogenization of our landscapes so that instead of having a mosaic of forested stands, grasslands, shrubs, that kind of thing, you have these homogenous conifer stands for the most part that can quickly carry and spread fire. So there are those impacts in addition to the fact that because of fire suppression, we in lots of these forests um, have much denser stands as well. And it's important also to, uh, to acknowledge that these systems evolved with fire, um, both fire from lightning ignitions and those um, set by indigenous communities to help sustain those ecosystems. And so what we've seen in the past hundred years or so is a real departure um, from that evolutionary fire history and a restructuring of the forests and the fire regimes with which they evolved. Mm -hmm. So if, if, the, if that fire suppression policies, uh, if, if they made, um, if they basically stocked the, the forests with uh, fuel ready to burn, um, it, it, do I have that characterization right? In terms of the effect of fire suppression, yeah. increasing fuel loads, definitely. So Carly, what can be done to prevent the size of the fires? Is it a matter of cutting down trees or uh, of controlled burns? There are lots of strategies. And those strategies and the applicability of those strategies depends on what value you're trying to protect. So the research that I'm involved in right now um, out of the Pacific Institute for Climate Solutions is really focused on what we can do in BC specifically um, towards the objectives of um, increasing forest resilience 
So allowing forests to have these natural disturbances like fire that are coming through and persist on the other side and still be able to provide the ecosystem services that we rely on from forests. So there's that piece, but there's also the piece about carbon. We'd like to manage forests to minimize carbon emissions as best we can and maximize um, the carbon that can be stored on the landscape. So there are lots of strategies for that. There are also strategies, let's say, if you're looking to protect a community, you might um, uh, put in a fire break in the wildland urban interface mm -hmm. or something like that. But I think, again, it's, it's important to have these be place specific um, and also informed by the science that's going on um, in that specific region, because there are those um, yeah, important regional and site-specific differences uh, that can really drive patterns that we're seeing. Tell me more about this this uh, this this research that you're doing uh, at the Pacific Institute for Climate Climate Solutions. Um, it, it, you said that the that you touched on some of the goals as far as um, you know reducing carbon emission or uh, carbon release, uh, but also keeping kind of the the, the forest uh, intact. Tell me more about what the research is. Uh, what type of research you're doing. And, and I'm particularly interested in hearing about um, some of the other agencies that are part of this because forest fire is not just a problem in BC or in Alberta. Definitely, it's everywhere. Like you said, you listed all the different places that had these really severe and catastrophic wildfires in 2020. Um, and on top of COVID, no less. Mm -hmm. So the, the agencies that are part of our project are UBC, uh, the US Forest Service and the Canadian Forest Service as well. And one of the things that I think makes our work unique is that we're not just looking at ways that we can manipulate the forest through mechanisms like thinning, um, prescribed burns, which you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, clearing fire breaks and that sort of thing, but also how some of those processes could be integrated with a bioeconomy so that we can use that fuel after it leaves the forest and keep it out of the atmosphere. Um, and so I think that kind of holistic perspective is really important when we're thinking about carbon, not just in the forest, but what happens to it afterwards. Carly, when you say use the fuel and keep it out of the atmosphere, what do you mean? I mean, fuel can have so many different meanings. Yeah, the, the wood. So, um, you know, biomass from trees, that kind of thing um, that can be used in long-lived wood products um, where that carbon is going to be, you know, tucked away for a long time. Um, similarly, in mass timber buildings, like we've seen on UBC's campus, those types mm. of long-lived products are a great place to have that carbon be stored after it leaves the forest. So that all speaks to the, the, the keeping that uh, the carbon out of the atmosphere by those long lived wood product products or projects um, that speaks to the ability of trees to suck carbon out of the air, as you mentioned earlier, largely through uh, photosynthesis. Um, I'm wondering, like, are Canada's we've been uh, you know, there, there's been a number of uh, forest fires. We, uh, one of uh, the largest industries or, or a large industry in the, in the country is forestry. Um, is Canada's, are Canada's forests still a net carbon sink or have they uh, crossed into the territory being uh, more of a, a carbon dump, uh, dumping carbon into the air? I can't comment on that specifically, but I know that the Canadian Forest Service has done really important work on that. And one of the leaders of the project, Dr. Werner Kurtz, who's a senior scientist at the Canadian Forest Service, 
um, is involved in um, doing those greenhouse gas analyses to understand. Um, and that's something uh, that's really important to understand as we move forward. But I, I can't speak about it on that um, large countrywide scale. So some of your work includes trying to limit carbon release into the atmosphere. Controlled burns, setting deliberate fires, doesn't that work against the goal? You are correct that when you do a prescribed burn, you are releasing carbon to the atmosphere. Um, the trade-off is that in a controlled situation, the way that that fire burns is likely going to be very different from a out of control wildfire that has moved into the crown of the canopy. Mm. So in some situations when you're when you're doing a prescribed burn, that, that burn is gonna stay on the ground and stay a surface fire. And so you're gonna have it remove some of those fine fuels, um, grasses, understory brush, that kind of thing, but without the kind of conflagration that you might see um, once the under different conditions when the fire would be burning and um, moving in to the canopy. And so the conditions under which a forest burns determine or, or can contribute to the amount of emissions. So the trade-off there would be a small amount of emissions released through that prescribed burn that might save or avert emissions from a larger fire that could come through, let's say, later in the season. And one of the things, uh, again, that I think is really special about the research project that I'm a part of is that we're doing those analyses to understand um, what systems and what treatments make sense in those systems. So asking those questions of where are those trade-offs and how do we, uh, how do we account um, for those necessary emissions, right? Fire has been a part of a lot of these ecosystems for a long time. And so removing fire entirely, um, as we have tried to do over the past century, is not an option. So there's a, there's a balance between um, adapting and having those fires be under our control, um, while also managing that to make sure that uh, in those place-specific settings, we're making the right decisions that, that balance those different values. What can be done to, um, or can anything be done as far as uh, pulling some of the carbon emissions out of the air uh, naturally? Is it just a matter of planting more trees? So your question's about kind of carbon removal generally. Mm -hmm. And you were correct that in natural systems, they're removing carbon from the atmosphere. I think that can be an important piece of our fight against climate change, but it's so much bigger than that. And I think that that's important to keep in mind, um, you know, in conversations about natural climate solutions, those can definitely be part and investment, um, but they also, those kinds of um, tree planting exercises also have to have those site-specific considerations that I was talking about earlier with treatments for wildfires. Um, I also, you know, it's important to reduce fossil fuel use generally, and I'm not able to talk about, you know, the ways in which we should do that. But those two things have to happen in tandem because it's not just about, um, you know, pulling carbon out of the atmosphere with trees, but reducing the amount um, that's going in from anthropogenic sources. Earlier, you mentioned the need to adapt to climate change. Can you speak to more of that in terms of some of the research work that you've been doing? I can, yeah, definitely speak to it in terms of wildfires. Um, and I think the idea of adaptation uh, spans a lot of different climate impacts. So with wildfires, 
it can mean, adapting can mean um, using some of those same treatments that I talked about that can mitigate you know, the loss of carbon, using those so that when the fire comes through, there are less homes at risk, um, less smoke impacts and those kinds of things. So again, kind of manipulating the forest towards that end. Um, you know, those are examples of adaptation and also kind of on an individual scale, people adapting to the fire risk in their area, whether or not when, you know, they decided to live in that place, they knew that that was going to be the case. Um, so yeah, being proactive um, and kind of realistic about the type of climate impacts that any given area will see is a, a critical part of adaptation. If people are, are looking to you, to reading your research, if they're reading it in, uh, uh, you know, um, op-eds and newspapers or, or online, or, you know, if they even caught your, your TEDx talk, what should next steps be, do you suggest for just the general public? What can, what can they do? What can, uh, you know, Joe public do as far as how to help um, in this, uh, in this effort of, uh, of preserving forests, managing forests, but also uh, reducing carbon in the atmosphere. I think voting is a really important piece of this. Um, uh, uh, climate change and our fight against climate change is going to involve system-wide transformations. And those systems right now are created and sustained by our governments. And so becoming involved in that process and letting your representatives know that you care about climate change um, and are interested in low carbon policies and living um, in a low carbon world, I think is a really important piece. I also think learning about the ecology of where you live is a great way to understand more about what's at risk um, and also how that might impact you as an individual. This is Why is produced by me, Adam Toy, and Dave McIver. It's a national radio show and a podcast. You can reach us by email at thisiswhy at globalnews.ca and on Twitter at thisiswhy. If you like what you hear and want to hear more, make sure you subscribe to This Is Why so you never miss an episode. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And if you like what you're hearing, tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Wash your hands, wear a mask, get vaccinated if you can, and stay home. We'll see you soon.